I feel like my entire life has been a series of hacks. You know, I hacked together a career. Most of us of a certain generation had to. There were no formal education and no formal job roles. If we call the Tetris hack my first hack, how did it influence um, me and my career? It really is a testament to, you know, my playful nature and the fact that many hackers still do this kind of thing for fun. Hola, cyber listeners. This is Lorenzo Franceschi Bicchierai, back on the host seat for another special episode of My First Hack. Today, we're talking to Katie Mazuris, a pioneer in the field of bug bounties. She's the founder of Luta Security and has previously worked for AdStake, Symantec, and Microsoft. Just like many others, Katie's first foray into the world of hacking involved a video game. In her case, Tetris. Let's hear the story from Katie herself. Hacking to me is, has always been about exploring your curiosity and it doesn't have to always be with a computer. It just happens to be with a computer half the time that I do it. Um, but you know, I'd been programming since I was eight years old on a Commodore 64. And so by the time I got to high school, you know, I, I could program in a couple of different languages back then, you know, it was basic and Pascal and C and that kind of thing. Although I hadn't learned C yet. Um, you know, they didn't start teaching C in my high school in, um, computer science classes until after I graduated. So that's kind of how, what era I belong to in computers. What happened was they had Tetris installed on all the PCs in the computer lab. And we, we were lucky in my high school, you know, this was late eighties, early nineties. You know, we were lucky in that we had two computer labs. We had one with a bunch of PCs in it and we had another with, um, I think they were like Apple two E's. So we had an Apple lab and we had a, a PC lab. So what happened was, uh, Tetris was installed on all the PCs in, in the PC lab and we'd play it, you know, whenever we were bored or even when we weren't bored, when we were supposed to be doing something else. But, um, I noticed that if you just answered the question about a joystick, with the wrong answer. And you said, yes, I have a joystick, but there was no joystick actually plugged in. And what I found was the application itself was not programmed with that edge case in mind that, that the user would lie about, about a particular input. And the effect on the program was that it slowed down the Tetris blocks. like to the point where they were crawling. So what I did was, you know, I said yes to that question, no joystick plugged in, slowed down the play of, of Tetris, and then went through the lab and made sure that all of the high scores that it was keeping track of were all me. And I also didn't want, you know, anyone thinking that, that you know, that I had done this playing fair and square. I wanted everyone to know that I had cheated. So I was replacing, you know, 
the high scores and I was giving the high score names, things like I cheat big, I, I am a cheater, you know, and all these things, because, you know, I just wanted everyone in my in my lab to appreciate my artwork and uh, my defacement of the of the high scores of all the Tetris games. Yeah, that, that's really that's a really funny story. And I feel like a lot of uh, hackers start with video games. So this is a familiar tale. So, you know, other than with this sort of full disclosure by, you know, saying that you were cheating in the high scores, did you tell your friends, like, did you share your knowledge with others? Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, million point scores don't don't just materialize with the I cheat big, you know, as the as the winner for all of these games. So, of course, I wanted them all to know it was me. I showed them what I had done. And then what was interesting was, you know, I had had uh, I had gotten a, a new computer at home and it was the fastest computer of all of my friends. So, of course, they all brought over their copied games. And then we found that programming, you know, was so much based on the internal slowness of most computers that most of the game programmers weren't actually um, programming thinking that their games were going to run on anything as fast as what I had at home. So we bring over, you know, we get all these copied games and most of them were actually unplayable because they ran too fast on my on my new PC at home. So, you know, in this early age and early era of computing, you know, there really wasn't, you know, this kind of discipline of testing your software on different kinds of devices and whatnot. Um, the software industry and the gaming industry was not very well developed. And, you know, me and most of my friends would, you know, would figure out how to give ourselves infinite lives, infinite supplies by opening up hex editors and changing those values directly, um, you know, in, in the games themselves, which is where, you know, your, your reference to a lot of hackers got started with games is because we like to, you know, we like to cheat and we like to, you know, not necessarily cheat to get away with it um, but cheat so that we can show our friends how clever we are you know it's it was no fun cheating at games unless you could show it off yeah and it's also a way to test the limits of a program see what the computer lets you do Yep, exactly. Um, you know, I remember as an adult getting in trouble when Symantec acquired At Stake. This was a very early um, application security pioneering company um, founded by some of the members of The Loft, who I grew up with in Boston. And, you know, At Stake was around for about four, almost five years. And then it was acquired by Symantec in 2004. And Symantec had this sort of internal, almost like a Facebook-like, um, you know, internal employee directory where you were supposed to upload your picture and, you know, write a little short bio about yourself. And so all the at-stake hackers now inside of what felt to us like a mega corporation, even though Symantec at the time was, I think, only somewhere around 6,000 employees, you know, so relatively small when, when you think about the size of large companies. But back then it seemed huge. So we started hacking each other, you know, just for fun, because of course we would. Um, that was passing the parameters, you know, um, in the, in the URLs and clear text. So we were, we were basically, uh, grabbing each other's profiles and changing the pictures and stuff. So I just remember, you know, uh, changing pictures on colleagues, um, profile pictures, changing, you know, their profiles to, you know, say that they, they liked farming and, you know, things like that and pictures, you know, instead of your, um, 
corporate headshot would suddenly be a baboon's ass. And, um, and then we all got the cease and desist hacking on the corporate network, uh, angry gram from Symantec's lawyers. And that was, uh, you know, that was us just being hackers, just doing our thing and, and exploring with curiosity and a sense of humor and really not doing anyone any harm. But we were still told to cease and desist even by our own parent company. So there you go. We'll be back with more after the break. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm talking to Katie Missouris about hacking in the corporate world. This is My First Hack, a recurring series on cyber. Do you think that's the moment where you sort of like uh, lost your innocence and realized that, you know, corporations would ruin hacking eventually? You know, I, I didn't lose my sense of hope that things could change. And that was why I started Semantic Vulnerability Research, because when we got there, Semantic had no hackers. We were the first hackers that Symantec actually hired, right? And so the advisories that Symantec would put out would be on viruses, you know, and things like that, uh, vulnerabilities in, in, um, you know, other products. Um, and we as hackers needed an outlet to disclose our vulnerabilities and, and the corporate umbrella protecting us as hackers, as security researchers. So I started semantic vulnerability research. Um, you know, we were finding vulnerabilities in third party products, either in our spare time or maybe something that was slightly out of scope for a client engagement, that kind of thing where it's not in the client software, but it's in some third party. So if you'd go into a client and you accidentally tripped over a bug in Oracle, for example, you know, we, we we had the right to report that vulnerability to Oracle, but there was no process at Symantec. So I started started that whole program. And um, I remember very distinctly that the PR people and the lawyers were really nervous at Symantec about us disclosing and releasing advisories on third-party products where we were the ones who were the finders of those bugs, right? They were fine with, you know, just republishing what what was already published, you know, in the existing semantic advisories, but they were not okay with us uh, publishing the stuff about our work. So I remember, you know, kind of get it, having it pushed back and pushed back and pushed back until finally one of the guys who, uh, who was working there at the time, he's now CTO of NCC Group, my good friend, Ollie Whitehouse. He had found some office vulnerabilities and, um, Microsoft had let us know that they were going to release an advisory and thank him in the, you know, in the, uh, uh, the bulletin notes. And so I just kind of hijacked that process. And I told the Symantec people, I said, Hey, look, uh, Microsoft's going public with their advisory. They're going to credit, um, Ollie and they're going to credit semantic vulnerability research. Cause we asked for the credit, you know, as well. 
Um, and so we're going to go ahead and release an advisory now. Like, and, and they tried to kind of push back being like, Ooh, are you sure? And I was like, Microsoft is releasing this advisory with our name in it. We are going to match their advisory release. So even inside a security company, we had to do, you know, or I had to do a lot of heavy lifting to, to get them to come around that this was a good thing. But yeah, we kind of used uh, Microsoft's bulletin giving us credit as an excuse to finally publish our own advisories. And after that, you know, we, we ended up publishing a bunch of, of original work from us as researchers. So I wouldn't say I lost my faith that, you know, big corporations were going to ruin disclosure. We were just at the beginning of big corporations um, embracing vulnerability disclosure. And me and my hacking buddies were, were at the forefront of that. Yeah, that's fascinating because obviously, you know, today in 2021, publishing advisories, disclosing vulnerabilities, it happens every day, right? Like just today, probably dozens or tens of vulnerabilities have been disclosed and it's, you know, it can be controversial from time to time, but it's become such a daily routine that we, a lot of people probably don't even think about it, people that are getting into the industry right now. But in those days, it was really pioneering work. And um, after At Stake and Symantec, you went on to Microsoft and you were a pioneer there too. Can you tell our listeners uh, how you transitioned to Microsoft and started the, their vulnerability research and bug bounty? Well, it started because I was doing a pen test up in Seattle. I was living in San Francisco at the time, and I was actually the first lead pen tester for the Gates Foundation, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and um, was doing that engagement. And I had heard that Microsoft took hackers out for beer. And I was like, well, I'm in town and I am a hacker and I would like a beer from Microsoft. So I wrote in to secure at Microsoft and I was like, hey, uh, you know, you may know me from running semantic vulnerability research and, you know, uh, hassling you about cases that, you know, my colleagues have found. Um, I'm in town doing a pen test. Uh, I've heard you buy hackers beer. I would like my beers, please. And so the entire MSRC, I didn't know it was the entire MSRC of all the case PMs all came out and we all had beers. And I actually remember like getting quite sick that night. It was so many beers. Um, but at the end of that bleary evening with, with the MSRC, they invited me for a tour of campus and tour of the MSRC in the office, um, you know, sometime while I was still up here. So I said, sure, sure. You know, why not? Um, as a former Linux developer, I, I see no reason for me to set foot on Microsoft's campus, but fine. You know, I'll totally come because you, you folks seem like a good time. So I get there and one, I was shocked at how small, you know, it seemed compared to the mission that they had. Right. What I didn't know is that there were, you know, 300 other employees. I just was meeting a subset of them. But, you know, it did strike me as my God, like this is where Patch Tuesday comes from. You need more people, you know. Um, but I remember the director at the time saying, you know, how do you like Symantec? And I said, well, I never applied to work here. They just bought the company that that I do work for, you know, which was at stake. And, you know, I felt I felt kind of disillusioned, you know, being a penetration tester for about seven years at that point. I was really disillusioned because it did seem like all of our clients were just checking the boxes, you know, and nothing was getting more secure. They were just getting more compliant, if that makes sense. So I was a little sick of the work, um, feeling like I was not really making a difference, even though I was hacking for a living, which was super fun. It was like the same hacks over and over again and nothing really interesting happening. So when 
when that director offered me a job in, um, I think at the time it was called the security community outreach team. I was like, what the hell does that mean? What is it like candy stripers for Vulns? Like, what do, what do you want from me? Um, I'm a hacker. Like what, what is this job? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's, you know, forming relationships with the hacker community. And I was like, okay, fine. Takes one to know one, I guess. And he said, you know, and, and traveling to all these conferences around the world. And I said, traveling to all these conferences in the world, you say, you mean conferences that I would have had to pay out of my own pocket to go travel to, and you're going to pay me to travel to all these places. You're going to give me a corporate credit card and you're actually instructing me to buy my friend's beer. And I was like, you know, I could probably make this job work. So, so I accepted the job and, um, and immediately it, it became clear that one, we needed a research program at Microsoft as well because the hackers had no way to publish their work there, same as Symantec. Um, and then more importantly, we also needed a way to do multi-party vulnerability coordination. So that was the birth of Microsoft vulnerability research, which I started in 2008, like less than a year after um, joining Microsoft in 2007. And uh, just to go back to your first hack, like how do you think, you know, hacking Tetris influenced your career and your, you know, the years after that? Hacking Tetris was simply just a blip in my journey of pushing every button, exploring every possibility, checking under every single rock. So even though, you know, I described that to you as my first hack, I feel like my entire life has been a series of hacks. And, um, you know, I hacked together a career, right? Most of us of a certain generation had to because there were no formal education and no formal job roles that, that were, um, that were even in existence as we were coming up. So I think that, you know, my first hack, I, I, if we call the Tetris hack my first hack, how did it influence, um, me and my career? It really is a testament to, you know, my playful nature and the fact that many hackers still do this kind of thing for fun. And in fact, even though I try not to find vulnerabilities, and I'll tell you why in a minute, um, but I actually try not to find vulnerabilities as much as possible. Um, I did stumble across one recently and I'm in the middle of a disclosure situation with the, <laughs> with the vendor. So who knows? Uh, maybe this will be my last hack, but I, I promise you I didn't even mean to. It was a accident, I swear. <laughs> Once a hacker, always a hacker. That's right. I can't. I can't help myself sometimes. <laughs> and uh, so, what would you tell like young hackers? Uh, you know, young people that are thinking about getting into the industry, maybe high school students like you were back in the day. What's your advice for them to get into this uh, sometimes scary world? You know, I would say continue to try to test the limits of everything you encounter, and question authority. Um, even, even if it's, you know, older hackers that you look up to the world, you know, the world is not yet fully formed and our world certainly isn't. So I think there's a lot of room to learn, but there's also a lot of room to define. It is not, uh, too early and it's not too late to get into hacking. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to, to end this. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Lorenzo. It's been really fun. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 